Hello friends, and welcome to There's No People Like Show People, the podcast that connects and reconnects the theater community, inspires hope, and strives to help people not feel so alone. I am your host, Sarah Philobom. I feel so much spring within me. Blow, winds blow. Spring has just begun. Hello, songbirds, and welcome back to another episode filled with joy and hope. There are so many ways to support There's No People Like Show People. Please follow us on Instagram or check out our official podcast merchandise store at www.there'snopeoplelikeshowpeople.itemorder.com. Each purchase supports honest storytelling and really helps us out. If you're enjoying listening along, please consider giving us a five-star rating and leaving a written review. Ratings and reviews really help other people to find the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart for your continued support. What the world needs most of all right now is more empathy, community, connection, and hope. And so I sing that I feel so much spring. Oh, hello, my beautiful, wonderful podcast listeners. How are you today? You know, I was recently listening. I feel like every episode of this podcast, I almost always say the same exact words, which are, I was recently listening to somebody's podcast because <laughs> I am a big fan of the art form. I listen to at least one, if not multiple podcast episodes a day. And it really just gets me through this messy thing that we call life. And I heard this quote quote, and I think it goes something along the lines of the highest form of mastery is simplicity. And I have really been sort of thinking about that, uh, meditating on that lately, because 2022 for me, my motto statement is simplify to amplify and less is more. So let me introduce you today to our wonderful guest. He is the creator of Life Review, the hospice musical, which celebrates life, love, and loss through three seasons at a residential hospice. It's a chorus line meets Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, I am super thrilled today. Welcome to the podcast, Benjamin Kintish. Thanks so much, Sarah. I appreciate the introduction. And uh, though the, the listeners at home can't see your smiling face, the smile got double, la- uh, double wide when you said the, uh, the chorus line meets Fiddler. So I think you might be a theater person. Am I right, Sarah? <laughs> no, I, I hate theater. I hate, I hate musicals. <laughs> oh, gee. And yet this podcast. No, it's, uh, it's true. Um, I also find myself smiling when I talk about theater. Um, even even a, a few weeks ago when, when, when Sondheim passed away um, and I did a week of let's listen to Stephen Sondheim songs with my middle school kids, who, by the way, didn't know who he was because, you know, they're 2021 20, kids. But anyway, <laughs> um, we, I was sharing all this beautiful music, so much of which is so emotional. And I kind of knew like maybe some of the kids are going to like it. Maybe some of them won't. Maybe later on they'll say, oh, yeah, I remember hearing about this guy. 
who knows? But like, but for me, I wanted to share it because the beautiful songs that that Sondheim wrote or co-wrote were so moving and so inspirational for me as a theater maker and a songwriter. I wanted to share them with my students. Um, so I, I appreciate what you're doing, sharing the love of, of theater with all of your, your podcast listeners of whatever age. And uh, I, I definitely feel like we've got that, that simpatico thing going that we both love this craft and, and love this art form and apparently can stay up past her bedtime recording podcasts about it. So <laughs> here we are. Yes, here we are on a lovely evening. Well, it's also because we are both parents. And so we, <laughs> and I'm like, I like truly, I just had to get my toddler to bed before we pushed the record button. So I think that she's sleeping upstairs. I'm not 100% sure. And if but she's not, you know, we, I can try to make this a really boring interview. So she'll, she'll doze. No problem. If, if she's not, we will definitely hear her. So, cause okay, she, she is very loud. She's got the pipes. She really does. I think she's definitely going to be a singer. Yeah. I, I decided that about my daughter uh, when she was a crier with impressive timbre and, and resonance. And I said, I think that's, that's a young vocalist. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. She's good. She's in yeah. the county honor choir for kids. A star is born. <laughs> know it. Okay. So where are you from? Where did you grow up and how did you get into theater? So I, I like, uh, so, so many of us um, was born in New York city, raised in the burbs. Um, coincidentally, the same hospital um, that my daughter was born in. I was as well. Roosevelt hospital. Um and uh, raised in Nyack, New York, little town north of New York City. For those of you not familiar with the New York area, it's sort of New York City lies at the base of the Hudson River, so to speak. So if you were to like kayak up the Hudson River about 20 miles, Nyack is on the left. In fact, there's an old timey song, let's take a boat to Bermuda, let's take a train to St. Paul, let's take a kayak to Quincy or Nyack, let's get away from it all, but boom boom. <laughs> So guys, um, if you want to meet up after the pod in Nyack, take your kayak. Um, I won't be there though, because I'm I'm in Columbia, Maryland now. But you could say hi to my parents. They're they're still there. <laughs> um, so yeah, grew up in Nyack and um went to public school all the way through high school, attended uh college in Rhode Island at Brown, and um then I've been to a few places since then, but mostly on the East Coast. Yeah. So, okay, I have to know the whole story. What inspired you to create Life Review of the Musical? Oh, well, um, the, the story goes like this. I was a beginning chaplain trainee in the first year of chaplaincy training uh, back in central New Jersey. And uh, I was working at Center for Hope Hospice and palliative care center in Elizabeth, New Jersey, in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. Um, and as a chaplain, one of the things you do is, is you visit the patients uh, in room-to-room -room visits, what we call bedside visits. Um, this is, of course, all years before COVID, so everything was still in close proximity and all that. Um, I loved these visits, um, especially the aspect uh, that 
is known clinically as life review. And of course, that that's the term that would would be used for for the name of the show. Life review means um, a sort of structured conversation that happens between the clinician and the person in distress. It's usually an older person or an ill person who's kind of reflecting on their life. Technically, you could do a life review conversation with another person going through a thing, but it's it's used most frequently, I, I believe, in clinical settings dealing with elders or seriously ill people as a way to reflect on a life well lived, mm-hmm. right? So when I first heard about this technique and then started to, to use it, essentially the bedside interview, the get to know you conversation, um, I loved the idea. And as I got to do it more and more, I, I kind of fell in love with the process because it, it, it was a structured way to quickly cut to the chase. Um, because you're talking with someone um, and you want to hear about their life and what matters to them and what mat- what mattered to them over the course of their life, what matters in that moment. Um, but you don't know if you're going to have multiple conversations or only one visit. So part of the artistry, if you will, of, of being a good chaplain is to have these loving, tender, gentle conversations, but also ask the questions that you need to um, to really shine a light on the stories um, and the themes of a, of a person's life that, that, that matter to them. Um, so that's where the term life review comes from. Um, I was driving home one night from my shift at the hospice and I'm on the, the phone with my wife and I say, honey, I, I think these stories I keep hearing, they want to be songs. And she said, okay, get writing. So that night I opened up one of those black and white journal books and I started sketching a song that would become one of my best ballads. It's called, Will It Still Snow When I'm Gone? And it's about a, a woman kind of imagining life after her life has ended. Um, it's that song like so many others have been revised a lot of times since, but you know, every big project needs to begin somewhere. Um, so the the idea was always about kind of illuminating these private stories, um, these very tender, quiet moments with the bright glare of the the stage lights or or the amplification of of the stage microphones, because the moments in hospice are super dramatic. They're just, they're just kind of, they move a little slower and quieter than uh, the stage treatment might imply. And, you know, we do a little razzle dazzle um, to make it, fun and palatable for palatable palatable for the uh the the audience um you know because there have been wonderful wonderful dramas angels in america come to mind where it's just straight drama and it's heartbreaking and you're crying for six hours straight and then you and then you're depressed for a week and that's impressive that's that's a powerful piece of art um (laughs) one of my 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 first uh co-writer Jason Spiewak, who wrote the music for five or six of our songs, he said, when when you figured out how to write a song that makes people cry, um, that's actually something of great power. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was actually, you know, after being encouraged initially by my wife to, to, to write and I started sketching, I took that song sketch of the, the song about snowing and I brought it that summer to a, a Jewish education conference Coincidentally, there was one workshop about songwriting and sharing songs. 
led by the fabulous folk songwriter Sue Horowitz. If you don't know her music, look her up. She's wonderful, uh, hero and mentor of mine. Well, Sue heard this song that I sang um, and a, in a room of 20 people just sitting around when I was done with this half done song, maybe 10 of them were, were weeping openly. And, and she said like that, that something happened in there. Like you, you, cre you created something really powerful. Um, is there more music? Are there more songs? I said, there are. And she said, you got to keep working at this. The other thing she said um, at the lunch that followed that little workshop was um, she said, Ben, clearly you, you can write a good heartbreaking ballad. You need to write some comedy numbers and you need to write some romance numbers, maybe a sexy song, maybe something that's shocking or angry. Like it can't just be sad ballads because they'll be crying their way to intermission and they won't want to come back for the second half. Um, and that was really good advice, even though Sue is more of a independent singer songwriter composer than a musical theater composer. Um, it's, a, it's important, especially when you have heavy subject matter to balance the, the heaviness with, with levity. And, and I think we, we do well in life review and striking that balance. Yeah, it's always good to have levels in, in any show. So it's really like, I, I think the best shows, they, they make you laugh, but they also make you cry because that's life. That's life. For real. Yeah. So with it, in terms of creating the show, what do you think, what have been some of your biggest struggles? Hmm. Well, it sure has taken a long time. I mean, that, <laughs> that apocryphal story, that was 2013, which is now is that eight, nine, nine, eight, nine years nine ago. Years ago. <laughs> I got used to saying we've been working on it seven years. And then I guess seven plus two is nine. Right. <laughs> Hashtag Ivy League. Um, anyway, no, they, they didn't make me take a math class at Brown. Um, no requirements. <laughs> also like hashtag what year is it? <laughs> what year is it? It's 2022. Oh, well, yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, <sighs> Sarah, what was the question, please? <laughs> what day uh, is it? Okay, other than math, what- Other than you, math, what's what difficult you, about the project? What have you struggled with? Well, okay, so like so many- uh, uh, I'll say two big things. Keeping the project going through a very long process mm -hmm. and managing an ever-growing and evolving creative team. So for thing one, um, any of you other playwrights, aspiring musical writers out there, wherever you are in your process, I commend you for being in the process. And I assure you, you are on your way and the journey is long. And I, I encourage you to get some comfortable shoes and some, some sturdy notebooks and keep writing and, and keep walking your journey. And that's sort of been, um, all, all joking aside though, like that's really been my process. When I started um, shortly after being encouraged by my wife to begin writing songs, I had that, that emotional reaction at the summer conference. And the other tip that Sue gave me was you need some collaborators, especially if if part of this is easy for you and part of it isn't. I'm a words guy, you can hear I'm a talker. So I wrote the lyrics for all 16 songs. I wrote the music for one and I leaned heavily on two wonderful composers who wrote 
I want to say the music for 14 songs between the two of them, a couple of other composers who did one song each and some arranging. So that's that's the second piece, which is managing this ever morphing creative team. You know, the first collaborator, Jason Spiewak, he's an amazing composer, but like so many great musicians, he's got a lot of stuff going on. So sometimes he'd be like, yeah, I got your lyrics, but I've got to go deal with my client, you know? And, yeah. and a passion project doesn't pay the bills, you know, his client does in the case of the guy who's a, a manager. Um, later on, it was actually a very um, painful phone call when he said, Ben, I bless you to do whatever you want with this project, but you need to find another collaborator because I'm just your bottleneck. And at the, that night, I was like devastated because Jason has become a good friend of mine. You know, like I did his kids bar mitzvah, blah, blah, blah. But like, it, it wasn't personal. It was just like, he, he said to me, I'm sitting on four of your songs and I haven't done music for them. So I'm slowing you down. Yeah. And he said, do you know other composers who could co-write some songs for this musical? And I was like, yeah. He's like, I think you should call them. And I was, he could hear that I was kind of sad. And he said, listen, I want to stay involved with this. I'm proud of what we've already accomplished. Mm -hmm. um, he said, if something comes of this project, obviously I'm glad to share in the, award, in the, in the re rewards. And, you know, if there's ever money to be had, if, if we should be so lucky, but if not, we're proud that we've written some beautiful songs together. Well, it turns out that having Jason step aside and, and, moving along with Mike, Mike ended up writing nine songs. I mean, he was so prolific. Um, I just spoke with him the other day and he said like some of those songs came out of him so fast he doesn't even remember being at the piano. Like he's just one of those composers who pours out. Um, amazing, amazing stuff. So, and, and I should say that, that that creative process of writing the song should also say that the song inspiration often happened while walking or swimming in the pool, sometimes bowling, sometimes in the hospice, but it was often like with a little bit of time refracting the conversation um, because I didn't, I didn't tend to make songs like, oh, I talked to Joe Schmo about how I was a carpenter. And then I'd go home and write a song about, I used to be a carpenter. Like I'm not that <laughs> literal. Um, plus, the, it's hard to rhyme carpenter. I don't, I'm sure Lin-Manuel could, but if you're listening, Lynn, good job <laughs> rhyming. Um, um, and thanks for listening to my podcast. <laughs> yeah, Sarah's a big fan too. <laughs> oh, a huge fan. Yeah, oh, sorry. <laughs> Didn't mean to get fanboy about Lin-Manuel um, on my interview. <laughs> no, um, but he, I knew that I wanted to keep going with this. Um, and it was always in the back of my mind, sometimes in the front of my mind. And oh, I guess what I'm getting at um, here, since I brought up Lynn and rhyming, a lot of folks have pointed to the fact that his masterwork, Hamilton, took him approximately six years from when he first picked up the, the book on his vacation to when it opened on Broadway. Might even have been a, a little bit longer than that. So I'm three years behind. And I'm still not on Broadway, but um, <laughs> it is also reassuring to know that someone as brilliant as him and as well funded as he was. Because remember, he had already gotten Tony's yep. for um, In the Heights when he had gone on vacation um, with his Hamilton book. 
he had a lot of stuff going for him and it still took him many, many years. Um, I say that to remind myself and reassure myself as I'm entering year nine. Um, we have had two live workshops along the way, right before COVID, we, we had a, a, a sort of concert version workshop at a, at a conference in Portland, Oregon. And then right before COVID hit, we had standing room only about 250 people cheering us on um, which is crazy for a workshop of a play no one's heard of um, here in tiny Columbia, Maryland. So that was thrilling. And that felt really, really heady. And that was February. No, no. J January 28th, February, uh, January 28th, 2020. So all February, I was like wheeling and dealing. I was calling people and I was like, oh, where am I going to bring this next? And who well, grants and I don't know. And then you heard this thing on the news about some virus and we all know how theater shut down after that. So that was that was a very difficult part of this long journey. And to state the obvious, but I also think it's an important part of your podcast right now in 2022 theater world is I am yet another um, theater maker struggling with. Really, it's it's this old battle between hope, hopefulness and hopelessness. Um, that that battle or struggle has often been described in those terms by my father-in-law, Dr. Marvin Hoffman, who's a, a retired education professor. And he would talk about how teachers go through this. They have to be hopeful and sometimes they feel hopeless when, when stuff goes wrong. Um, and I think creatives, certainly theater makers, um, we have to deal with that because you have to be very hopeful, um, perhaps foolishly optimistic to have an idea parentheses nine years ago and think like, all right, I'm going to take this crazy idea of setting a musical in a hospice, no less a comedy one, and then writing songs that deal with this and this and this and this, and then somehow weaving a plot. And then along the way being told that it just didn't work. There wasn't enough of a plot and me believing that, yes, it did work. And, and <laughs> do I listen to my mother-in-law? She's a published author, <laughs> but she's my mother-in-law. Um, <laughs> You know, um, with love, Posey, if you hear this podcast, I still think you've sold a lot more novels than me, and I hope I'm right. Um, <laughs> but that's that's a real thing about the, this process, too. It's not just keeping it going with your day job and then finding, I mean, one of the things, and I'm now referencing Miranda for the third time, when I, when I read his big book, do you have that coffee table book at home about how he made his play? Oh, yes. yeah. I'm guessing most of your listeners do, too. Um, so one thing that made an impression on me in that book was the choreographer, was Andy Blankenspiel, I think, who described doing most of the choreography while he had an infant at home, I believe. And he was like in a basement with like six and a half foot ceiling and he had to like do modified hand movements. so He wouldn't break his hand and like you could just picture it. Mm -hmm. And this is a guy who now is like widely regarded as a spectacular world-class choreographer. But until he had that moment, he was bumping his hand on a low ceiling and trying not to wake up his, his child and his wife sleeping upstairs. Um, this is what we do when we haven't yet been blessed with the funding or the partnership that makes it a little more comfortable to do the creative stuff. So in terms of my life, the first two or three, first two years I was working on this, I was a full-time cantor, um, working at a synagogue 
oh, I would say 50 hours a week, um, plus the chaplaincy training, plus being a dad of a three-year-old. So when the hell did I write these songs? I, I start them in the pool. I do lap swimming. And, um, you know, I'd be thinking and thinking like, oh, yeah, something about, you know, like for the R&B song I, I, that I came up with. It's something about sex. OK, yeah, that's <laughs> like most R&B songs. And then I was like, yeah, I think it's something about like lusting after the caregivers. That's funny. These nurses are hot, especially when you're like a person in bed and you got nothing to do except fantasize at all these people. And, and as a few of the jokes in my script say, like, um, I have a very old character named Leroy, who's 102. And, and he says, the only thing I need in a woman is, well, she's a woman and she's less than a hundred. <laughs> and, like, and there's a, there's something to that. Um, it turns out the nurse is very lovely and she's 50. So he has a crush on her. Um, and there's a whole song about it. And we, we, we're playful, um, kind of inverting the, the caregiving tropes. So this time I want to undress you. This time I want to caress you. This time um, I'll get dirty with you and then I'll sponge you clean. So that's the, uh, that's the refrain and it's very funny. Um, my pianist music director for the Columbia workshop who's a very religious Christian woman when she actually looked at the lyrics up close, like some of us do sometimes with pop songs and we're like, Ugh. so she was like, Ben, I don't think this song's appropriate. I'm like, oh yes it is. And she, I was like, I was like, I'm pretty sexual for both men and women. And that's, that's real. Um, and it sort of embarrassed her, but I was like, listen, the point, I was like, the fact that you're embarrassed as a 60 year old woman, who's a, a grandmother and apparently you've, probably been with your husband at least once based on the fact you've had children and she kind of went you know yeah like put her hand over her face I said I said I'm not going to ask you about anything inappropriate but let's be real here the reason why the song is funny is because the sexual urge is not only prevalent and essentially universal among the human species it's arguably the most powerful urge we have along with hunger and thirst. And therefore, it's also one of the last urges to go. Mm -hmm. So when someone has lost their ability to talk, when they're cognitively impaired, they might still have very powerful sexual urges. They might still have very powerful, uh, like vivid sexual romantic fantasies about the care team. Um, that's real life. Now we play with it in a sort of over the top way with these really raunchy lyrics and the fact that we have three patients getting out of bed and like doing embarrassing dances. Um, that's good comedy. Um, but the underlying theme there is very uncomfortable for a lot of people, um, which is that old people and dying people have sexual thoughts, just like sexy young people. Um, and, and that, you know, Hollywood hardly ever wants to acknowledge the existence of, of, you know, sexual impulses, let alone, activity and people beyond the age of 50. Um, so in a way, I'm, I'm a little bit nervy here to acknowledge that even people who are literally dying um, have those urges. But this is, this is part of, of what's powerful about comedy and drama is that we can shine a light on some of these places where audiences might not want to look. Um, I was told by, by a, a woman of a certain age, I'm going to guess early 70s, who saw the workshop in Columbia, and she said it was 
one of her favorite songs. Like the, she said, the ballads are beautiful. And I cried like four times, but my favorite song was the sex song. And I was like, <laughs> oh, good. Why? And she said, well, she said, I'm not going to tell you too much, Ben, but I'm over 70 and I still have feelings. I'm like, good for you. You know, and I think I might have blushed under this beard. But look, we deal not just with the sex thing, but the, the big elephant in the room is death and dying. I mean, that's what hospice is. Hospice is, for your listeners who don't know, it is um, essentially medical care or comfort care for people dealing with end of life uh, prognosis. Mm -hmm. So someone who's late term cancer, late term Parkinson's, late stage Alzheimer's, those are, are your three most common um, conditions leading to uh, a hospice stay as opposed to someone say, who's been hospitalized with surgeries and there's got tubes and, and respirators, a person like that can't go to hospice because you, you, you need to be, uh, sort of have a, a simple, a, a more simple manageable medical situation where um, pain can be managed and where spiritual matters um, can be managed. And that's the role of the chaplain who's our, our hero in the play. All right, I'm gonna catch my breath and drink some water. <laughs> Yes. And, okay. and, it, and if I went on way too long on the sex thing, it's because it's past nine and the kids are asleep. So we can actually talk about not PG rated things, which is like. Earlier today, I heard two different competing death podcasts where one <laughs> guest dropped the F-bomb and then she said, oh, shit, can I curse? And the host said, F yeah. So if if you're radio editing this, sorrow, sorry, uh, radio. Oh no, you, no, you can curse on here. Woo! Abs um, abs absolutely. There, there are very little rules on there's no people like show people. That's good. It's that's very good. freeing. You really can just you can show up however you are and you can talk about whatever you want. Nice. So we can tell the listeners that I got a great haircut, even though you can see the truth that my wife's been asking me for a month and it's kind of poofy. In fact, it doesn't even, oh no, I described it, didn't I? I did. Yeah, guys, um, great haircut. You, Looking you, good, Kentish. I know, listeners, you can't see us right now. You can, you can only use your imagination. And at this point, he's so deadpan. Does he have a haircut? Does he have hair at all? We don't know. We don't know. We really- You we, should see how confused my middle school chorus students are. They're just like, what are you saying? When I say some nonsense, all deadpan, and they're like, wait, what? Okay. I'm like, oh, good, you're awake. What is your favorite thing about teaching? Because I am also a teacher of all ages and all levels. What is your favorite thing? Oh, geez, it's like picking my favorite child. Well, I, I have an only child, so. Me too. That, so that, that metaphor so, so it's easy, that's my favorite child. Me. I mean, big picture, it's, making music and sharing the joy of music with kids right now because of covid the i have to change my answer in normal times it would be singing with kids i mean i'm a chorus teacher my other hat is cantor which is like a jewish music minister so leading song song leading leading choirs singing with the choirs those are all things i love to do um but for those who aren't singers sharing a song that they've never heard before Geez, to celebrate the birthday and legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King shared some spirituals last week down by the riverside. I thought that was a song that everyone knew. 
none of my students knew that song. And I was wow. like, oh my, well, I'm glad I'm sharing it with you now because that's why teachers share stuff. I mean, yes. and I know that song probably because a teacher taught me and a teacher taught you, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you learned it in church. I didn't, I went to synagogue, but like uh, um, they, uh, that's something that I love to do to share the music that I love um, to sing with kids because I love to sing and it gives me great joy. I hope to, to transmit that to the kids. Um, more broadly and generally, um, I'm a person who loved school and I love school and I love learning and I love being with people. Not all kids who show up to middle school feel that way. Um, middle school COVID plus the zip code where I work is not a, a high achieving um, school, but I do believe, um, I believe that people can really learn when, when the teaching is infused with joy and love. So I try to let that guide all of my lessons. Like maybe they'll learn about music. Maybe they'll just have a pleasant time in school when life is hard. Um, I'm glad if, if chorus class feels like a break or a fun time. Yeah. How, how do you define success? So this is one based on the pregnant pause there that uh, <laughs> I struggle with a little bit. I'll say I, I just uh, was talking to Dr. R, my therapist the other night, and I, we used 15 minutes out of 45 precious minutes of therapy to talk about my play, which is like, that's a high value, high value minute right there. And I, I told him that I felt good about last year. We did virtual tour 2021. And, you know, I did like six or seven virtual appearances at the virtual cabaret I'm doing and maybe half a dozen podcast appearances. So considering that it was a pandemic year, it was pretty successful. Now, I was hoping to do even more. So you could say that was a pretty successful year based on the number of appearances and the variety of appearances that I did. And that sort of overachiever uh, delusions of grandeur part of myself would say, Ben, you, you only did 15 appearances and you wanted to do a hundred. So that's, that's a challenge. Um, and, and a little bit of a struggle I've always had as a sort of, bright, high achieving person. Like I can do a lot of stuff. That's I'm, I'm blessed with a lot of talents. I'm, I'm bold enough to say. Um, so choosing how to use the talent and specific to this project, where to devote my energies, how to walk down this meandering path that is developing a player musical with my particular talents or capabilities along with my limitations. I mean, you and I were laughing before we pressed play, how we're both parents being on time is challenging. Um, so, okay, we started a little late tonight. Um, in real life, when we're on the clock, like being on time is sometimes challenging for me. Um, and other like executive functioning type stuff, not my, best thing and i'll tell you like we almost had performance number three this september we had a live workshop planned we had a cast and then unfortunately one actress chose to leave us 10 days out and 
that's that's it with a small cast and no understudies that was that was it and that was really difficult but i also learned like i don't think i'm a producer i mean i've produced two workshops thus far but like the next stage reading or concert version or whatever i need to partner with a theater or an organization so i have more members helping me on the team people who can keep the trains running yeah um I like to say I can write a hell of a funny song about keeping the trains running, but I can't keep them running. So um, if anyone listening needs a song about trains, um, you can get in touch with me on Instagram. Um, but that's that's been an important part of, of this process. Oh, so the question was success. So I, I would say even looking at the production that didn't happen in September, I was successful in shaking the dust off of a script that had been in a drawer for 18 months because of COVID, right? Like I've done all of these um, virtual cabarets and that's sort of the tour that I'm promoting now with this podcast, right? You guys can be in touch, lifereviewmusical.com to book me, but it's a 45 minute one man show, camera facing. It's good, but it is not a stage production, mm -hmm. right? So. I feel successful when I perform those eight songs. Like I'm in this room where I'm recording today and I stand up and um, you singers out there know when you do a cabaret show, even if it's quote only 45 minutes, you work your ass off because you're singing. And then in between when you wanna catch your breath, you're narrating and you're trying to be charming. And, and this is through a computer screen, which we all know is not the most forgiving audience. Um, I would much rather play a room of a hundred people than a, than a little white dot in a room that's empty any day. Cause it's so much more fun and so much more energizing to have laughs and to have claps. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So this is all to say that success right now looks very different than it did two or three years ago, which I understand has been the, uh, a very important theme for a lot of your beautiful conversations you've been, you've been hosting on, on this podcast. I've really enjoyed listening to some of the back episodes and, and hearing people say like, I'm trying to do this, but I can't do this, but I'm trying to do that. Um, so, so is it successful if I have an engagement? Like I played the NIH this year. I, I think if it weren't for COVID, I probably would have never even thought to try to book the NIH. It's not like a famous theater venue. Um, for the record, Fauci did not attend. It was a, a small <laughs> event for the palliative care department, but like that's a feather in my cap. It's that's a, prestigious, a big deal. I, yeah, I think it's a prestigious institution. Yeah. And certainly for a musical that's all about health, even though it was, quote, just 15 doctors on their lunch break on a Wednesday last year, when it was done, I said to myself, like, oh, that happened, right? And I was totally, I have a very distinct memory because like so many of these virtual appearances and, and any of you listening who have also been doing the virtual hustle, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, you have to get this sort of get up and go of a performer to, you know, to get this voice, folks, I'm so glad you're with us today. And, you know, like the eyebrows are up and the, and the voice is a little bit animated, right? Okay, hopefully I'm not that ridiculous, but you know, you have to have that, that presence and it takes energy. And then when it's done, you sit down and you're like, it's just a click. Um, it's somehow that's very different to me. It feels very different than live. And in terms of success, you know, 
audiences we know are fickle and sometimes you have a good house and sometimes you have a bad house. But generally speaking, if you put on a nice show, people will give you at least a, you tried clap, right? Um, and if it's friends and family that's that you successfully corralled into your performance, seeing them across from you is wonderful. Um, I've had some occasions in the last year at these six or seven virtual performances where I had a friend or family member, like they got the link from somewhere. And then they're like, I saw your thing in Arizona. I'm like, for a second, I'm like, wait, you were in Arizona. And then I'm remembering, oh yeah, that conference. How did you know about that? Oh, because you're also a chaplain friend and you know, Dr. Tio. Oh, great. And then they say, oh, it was cool. And I'm like, thanks. Like that's a very weird situation in the theater world that people are seeing your stuff in ways that just, it, it feels a little random. Like, how did you hear about this? I mean, you and I are connected because we found each other on Instagram. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of my connections in the next year will be through Instagram um, conversations and connections. And in a sense, that's so there's there's another way to measure success. So I've done appearances where I play for, I don't know, 30 or 50 or 75 people logging on at their conference or their presentation or their training. And then a day later, I get two or three bites on the website, inquiries, questions. Sometimes that will lead to another training or another appearance. Sometimes they just want to talk to me. Um, but that's data that that indicates that there's some interest. Um, we did have one uh, benefit performance last year. Um, the wonderful podcaster of End of Life University, Karen Wyatt, um, had me on her pod last year and it was a great interview. And then she said, how can I help? I said, you want to produce a show? And she said, sure. So she did a virtual performance and it was a benefit for a Denver hospice where she serves as a, as a member of their board. Um, we raised a lot of money. Uh, and we split the proceeds between the production and the charity. The charity was very happy to get a big check out of the blue. And so that was a very big success. And it was, yeah. it was, uh, thank goodness Dr. Wyatt was able to do the production and the, the arrangements. She's a, a great organizer and, and we're planning on doing a second annual version, this time getting the development team on board so they can raise the real money. Um, but that also points to the fact that like, even in the weird, weird ass pandemic where we are trying to put on our shows, but if we can't put on the show on the stage, we're trying to do it on the computer and we're maybe pre-recorded, but like, we want to share what we've created with people. And then, um, oh, it wants my plug and my daughter took my plug. Grr! Okay, all the podcast listeners are hearing that when your child takes your laptop and they don't plug it in. All right, I better talk fast before the computer dies. I know, so, I know. Yeah, how so much, success much, could be making a connection. Success could be making money. Success could be five or 10 people who listen and are moved, right? It doesn't always have to be the next step or the next connection. I mean, yeah. real... To, to be frank, because I'm still in development, I want to make connections. I want people hearing this interview or seeing me do the virtual show to be curious and to look me up and get in touch because that's how the project grows. Um, 
what I think is so tricky is not just the, the absence of the live audiences in terms of gauging success. It's also because COVID and the pandemic have changed so many aspects of live theater and live entertainment. Um, the path that was perhaps circuitous and zigzag pre-COVID to get your little musical up the mountaintop. Now, who the hell knows what that path looks like? I heard Ken Davenport, as in mega Broadway producer Ken Davenport on a podcast the other day saying, oh, I have no idea what the, what the hell the, what the future is. He was like, I'm still, that's Kevin Daven, Ken Davenport. Now, he did in the same paragraph say, I have two Broadway shows that I'm waiting to slot in once I get the opening. So like he's operating on a different level, but he's also swimming in these strange waters. Now, yeah. Broadway, I mean, our family saw Wicked like the grand poobah of Broadway mega musicals during the pandemic over Thanksgiving weekend. It was freaking weird. It was weird. I, I felt a little bit fearful. I was double vaxxed. I had double mask. Our daughter was double vaxxed. But it was also a thousand people inside. Yeah. No, actually, it was probably 1,700 people. It's a huge house, huge house. And I couldn't decide if I was scared or not. But I was like, you know what? I'm suspending disbelief. I'm just going to say I'm safe. My daughter is thrilled because it's her first ever Broadway performance. And she was over the moon. And it was amazing, right? You know. For, for all the, the reasons that Wicked is incredible for an 11-year-old girl and her proud parents, it was incredible. Um, but I also looked around and I saw how this, you know, billion-dollar live entertainment industry is also kind of hanging by a thread right now. Yeah. Because Broadway blockbusters may be able to pack them in because of tourism and big-dollar advertising. You can't travel New York City without seeing a Wicked poster. Like, it's like Coca-Cola. Why does everyone like Coca-Cola? Because they spend a billion dollars a year telling you to like Coca-Cola. So Wicked's kind of like that in Broadway. What I'm concerned about, and I think a lot of my colleagues are as well, what's happening to the new productions, including my own, that have been in the pipeline since 2013 or 2014 or even 2018? You know, if someone writes faster than me and they're also hoping to find a stage, whether it's community college or regional or, or whatever, forget about Broadway. We know for a fact that the pipeline is way jammed right now. So getting stages, very difficult. Um, I believe conversely though, and this is maybe the, the silver lining or the, the rainbow peeking through, I do believe that folks stuck at home, not able to go out, um, it was a little bit like the big yellow taxi. You don't know what you got till it's gone, right? So people who liked theater once a year, I think some of those people were like, oh my God, I miss it more than I realized. I mean, theater, I, I my family, we have like two or three subscriptions a year. Like we go to the theater all the time, high school, middle school, all of it. So like, it was a big part of our life that was missing when we couldn't see live theater. And the first live show we saw last summer, it was Summerstock at Rehoboth Beach. My wife, it happened to be Sound of Music, which is like the perfect sentimental musical. They started the opening overture. My wife and I were weeping. Yes. We're like, oh, live theater, I love you. And, and our daughter turned to us and she's like, what's the matter? And we're like, we love theater. <laughs> so, so if we can get back 
and perform live, that will be a success, full stop. Um, what, you know, the, this is a very long and complicated answer, I'm very aware. Um, and, and I think that that's the case for so many of us. I mean, I mentioned Broadway, we know there were also a lot of casualties on Broadway plays that were like just hanging on and then closed. So that's a whole different universe. I think for the little plays that could, mine and I'm assuming hundreds of others around the country trying to get noticed, um, we are having to be nimble and creative. Um, earlier today, I did my first IG video. Did I do an IG live? I think I have to figure out if I made it live. I don't know. So clearly I'm new to that, but Again, this is more of the, well, what the hell can you do if you can't do the predictable progression of music stands and then off book and then in a small room and then in a black box theater? Like that linear progression, I don't believe is available. Like if I can get it, great. Um, but earlier today, I was like doing cold emails to theater professors at a few regional community colleges because... I still think that's my best bet to move forward in the development process, to have that, that partner with a little bit of theater infrastructure. Because for those of us going at alone, it's not, it's not really a solo sport. Even a one-man show, so to speak, is not a solo sport. Um, and when you have a music, I have a small ensemble cast that's written for six, possibly eight in the future. And, you know, expand upwards with budgets and, and square footage on the theater, but like it'll work with six or eight. Um, I can't do that right now. I can't pull it off. I tried to in September and the wheels fell off fast um, because, and part of the reason was I need a cast that skews older. It's hard to get actors who are 50, 60 plus um, to volunteer. Maybe it's different if they're professional actors and it's like an occupational hazard, but a lot of community theaters are on and off. The lights are on, the lights are off. The place where we subscribe in Columbia, small house, they couldn't afford the HVAC upgrade. They're, I, I don't know what they're gonna do. It's really sad. Um, others that are in bigger houses, you know, the, the big regional, you know, you're also from Maryland. So the big regional players, they're all back, only and others, mm -hmm. but they also, have million dollar budgets. So when they needed to, they got, they got their air system fixed. Um, and, and I'll tell you one last thing about this in terms of success. We um, added a subscription this year. I, I, I keep buying theater tickets. I, it's a problem, um, <laughs> but uh, maybe you can relate. So I got a subscription this year, uh, a mini, a baby subscription to Theater J, the Jewish theater in Washington, DC, partially because I hope to play there someday. And we went to the, the first play in this new season, which was a, a one, one woman show, Dr. Ruth. It was great. And the artistic director greeted the audience. It's a house with 150 people. It was a weeknight. You wanna guess how many people were in the house? Oh gosh, I have no idea. I'll give you a hint, fewer than 150. Yeah. It might've been 18 to use a nice oh, Jewish wow. number. It could have been 24, but not 100. Now, granted, weekday night, but these are post or mid-COVID numbers. And we know that theater subscribers skew older. So um, all of you listening, if you are comfortable, here's a second, uh, second, but by no means last 
public service announcement for the pod. Um, <laughs> if you are comfortable going to see live theater right now, I encourage you to buy your tickets and go as soon as you can. Um, if you are not comfortable going in, I encourage you, if you have the resources to make a charitable donation to one or more theaters that you care about, um, they are all fighting to survive right now and they need our help. Um, when they fold, they're not easily replaceable, especially when buildings and real estate is, is on the line. Um, so maybe part of the success is also being part of the resilience of the theater scene to spite. I mean, when I first found your pod and I saw your description, honestly, I was, I was quietly moved because you, in your description, you talked about like bringing the theater community together during this, this time of upheaval and loneliness and isolation. Um, I haven't really had a chance to chat with you prior to this recorded conversation, Sarah, but I'm guessing based on your bio, you had at least one, if not several COVID related performing arts disappointments. Um, I think all of us did because theater people who are involved, we usually have one or more things in the hopper that are months out in advance mm -hmm. and they all got canceled. I mean, the coach who helped me, um, shout out to Alex Paulting, Hustling Creative. Um, she was off Broadway bound, a young woman with her first off Broadway contract. And the rehearsals were supposed to start March 15th, 2020. So when she was coaching me and there were a few tearful sessions and I was like, I made this amazing thing and I don't know if it's ever going to see the light of day. She's like, I know, Ben, I got my off-Broadway contract and I don't know if I'll ever get back, but we still need to continue. So at that moment, success had nothing to do with off-Broadway for Alex and nothing to do with me getting back on a stage. At that point, it had to do with both of us pivoting into a direction where we could go. So now like, oh, wow, I'm feeling the emotion welling up a little bit because it was such a roller coaster um, coming off that, uh, that incredible high, like the night of the standing room only workshop in, in January of 2020, probably top five all-time life experiences along with getting married, birth of my daughter, and I don't know, some sort of good rugby game or something. But like, it was incredible incredible experience and then three weeks later it was devastation like I didn't know if it was ever going to go again so that was and and I think so many of us creative people especially in the lively arts when we had our project whether we were pushing it or participating in it or funding it or cheering in the audience that's a lot of people and the loved ones for that matter like my wife and daughter saw me depressed and crying in those first few weeks. Like, I was a wreck. Tune in next week for another heartfelt conversation with Benjamin Kintish. We'll see you next week for part two.